Welcome to Orchard UMC's podcast. At Orchard, we endeavor to live into our mission of transforming the world by growing in faith, serving others, and sharing Jesus. Our scripture today is Matthew 9, verses 35 through 38. Then Jesus went out about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The word of God for people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you all pray with me? Holy and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each and every one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, as you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as you know, we are now in our second week of our Lenten series um, that's based off of the Bob Goff book, Be Love. And today, uh, the scripture that I chose to address was one uh, that's found in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you know uh, your Gospels, if you know your New Testament, you know that Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, right? Uh, Which has this implication that it's the earliest of the books, but that's not actually the case. It's not. Um, There is also this thought that actually Matthew was um, actually where Mark, the Gospel of Mark, got all of its work from, right? Got got all of the stories from, and that's actually not the case as well. It actually turns out that Matthew was something that comes from the writings of Mark, and we learn this through this fancy, nerdy theological term that's called uh, redaction uh, criticism. It's, it's basically how we see how Mark um, was edited by Matthew, what, where it adds and omits and it changes stories. And why this is important, especially in light of Matthew, is because it's important to look at Mark and Matthew in context and see what isn't in Mark that's in Matthew that makes Matthew so important and different. All right, One of the most important things in the book of Matthew, the birth of Jesus is included, but Mark it isn't. Well, that's a big deal. Um, some of Jesus' most famous words are in Matthew, and they're not in Mark. For instance, the Beatitudes are in there. The Golden Rule is found in there. The Lord's Prayer is found in there. Um, Matthew um, was a book that was designed to get to the heart of what the law should be. It was a book that was designed to, get to, uh, to connect to the Hebrew Bible, which um, for Christians we call that the uh, Old Testament. So Matthew's desire... And writing the Gospel of Matthew was to show Jesus' Jewishness. Um, it begins by saying, um, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham, of course, is um, the father of the Jews. Uh, David was their greatest king. Uh, so Matthew is seeking to show Israel's history as divine providence that it was meant to happen exactly this way. So that's what Matthew does. So the, at, the be- at the beginning of Matthew, it starts off by talking about different generations, and specifically it addresses 14 generations. So in other words, there were 14 generations between Abraham and David. 
Then there were another 14 generations between David and the exile from Babylon, which was a traumatic experience from the Jewish people. There were also 14 generations between the deportation from Babylon to the birth of Jesus. So you go from the father of their faith to the greatest king to their greatest catastrophe to the ultimate deliverer. Now, this was all explained this way in Matthew to bring a sense of unity. Um, it was encouraged to allow Jewish people to see that, that we weren't trying, there wasn't something new that was trying to be created. It was just calling us to live further into the faith. Uh, it was calling the people to live further in the Jewish law. And what's fascinating about Matthew, or maybe heartbreaking, is that Matthew has been used to commit some really vile acts, anti-Semitic acts, based off of some words in Matthew. It's from Matthew that a verse has been taken out of context to cause a lot of pain. Uh, At the trial of Jesus, uh, Pontius Pilate washes his hands of Jesus, right? And the crowd responds to him. The crowd says, his blood be on us and our children. Now these words have been used by Christians to commit some really vile acts and say vile things to our Jewish brothers and sisters. Yet, Matthew, or more specifically Jesus, isn't challenging the Jewish faith. He's challenging the Jewish leaders, the Jewish authorities. He's not against the Jewish people or the religion. The key word is the leaders. Jesus in Matthew is the Jewish Messiah who has come to fulfill the Jewish law. His followers are all Jewish. Matthew paints Jesus as the new Moses and the new law. But contrary to what that sounds like, it's not encouraging the people to abandon the old law, but to live into the intent of the law. And this is where Jesus' ultimate challenge to the authorities lies. It's in Matthew that Jesus states, I have not come to abolish the law, but fulfill it. For instance, let's take the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has this tendency of saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, right? So in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard it said that you shall not commit murder. He doesn't follow that up by saying, but I think you should, right? Because that would be contrarian to the law. Instead, he enforces the old law and encourages the people to follow it more closely than the religious leaders would. He calls them to think radically. He says, uh, you have heard it said not to commit murder, which in my opinion is a pretty low bar, right? To not commit murder, that's a low bar for people. But he follows it up, he says, I, I, you have heard it said that thou shalt not commit murder, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with their brother will be subject to judgment. So in other words, Jesus is saying, look, it's not enough to just not murder people. I mean, come on, that's, that should be fairly easy. I would hope that's a fairly easy thing. Uh, he goes deeper into the heart of the law because he says that it's not murder that's the ultimate bad of the act. It's the fact that we let such anger and hurt and, and, and vileness into our hearts that leads us to do these terrible things. So the letter of the law strictly interpreted is not as important as the heart of the law. Now why do I follow down these rabbit holes? Why have I gone there? I mean, I haven't even talked about our verse yet, right? I'm, yeah. But the reality is, I believe our biblical literacy is really important, and it helps us to avoid following down this version of a watered-down Christianity. Because Jesus doesn't call us to be lukewarm followers of God, but to be passionate followers. 
And sometimes this passion causes anger, right? I mean, the passion that Jesus displayed uh, led to a lot of anger that occurred. Uh, for instance, I mentioned the Beatitudes where uh, Jesus says all these amazing, beautiful things about how we should treat one another. And those things um, angered the authorities a lot because they were challenging the authorities. They were challenging the, the, the leaders of the law because he was saying, they're going to tell you to do this. That's the absolutely bare minimum. You've got to do more, everyone. You, this is really what you've got to do. So they're not leading you the right way. So the leaders of the law were pretty upset about that. I mean, I probably would be if someone came in here and said, don't listen to Nick. He doesn't know what he's talking about, right? So the authorities were angry. They accused him of blasphemy. Um, actually, what we didn't read in there was uh, the verse right before where actually the authorities essentially called Jesus Satan. They say their exact words are, you are the prince of demons and driving out demons. Because right before that, Jesus was not obeying the law and he was healing people on the Sabbath and he was helping people who were sick. He was doing all these sorts of things that really angered the religious leaders. So now let me ask you a question. I come up to you and I accuse you of being Satan. How are you going to respond to that? You're probably not going to like it, right? Probably you're going to vehemently oppose it. You might clap back and say, no, no way. I'm a good person. I do good things. Look at what I did last week. I did this. I did that. You're going to tell them everything that makes you great or, or good. I certainly would respond that way, yet uh, Jesus doesn't respond that way, actually, because right here we see he actually ignores the charge, and he just completely goes on doing what he's doing. He's like, I'm not even going to give them any time or day. I'm just going to do my thing. Because sometimes the best defense of self isn't to tell people what we've done, right? It isn't to tell them what we're doing. It isn't to say what we will do. But the best defense we can do is to just go out and do it. And that's what brings us to the compassionate love of Christ. In verse 36, uh, we, Matthew says, when he saw the crowd, and he is in Jesus, when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I realize one thing. We often talk about our love as Christians, right? We say the right words. We talk about loving one another. Um, but sometimes I don't think we really realize what that means. Now, do you have people in your life that you're talking to um, and then they say to you, well, I love everyone, and then your immediate reaction is to do this, like, dramatic eye roll in the back of your head because you know that probably isn't the case, you know, because you've heard them say things or you've seen them do things that seem kind of counter to this idea of love. Now, whether it be words or actions or deeds, we look for evidence of that love, and, and that person, maybe you struggle to see it. Uh, right now, we live in such a politically charged climate that we're throwing around the word love like it's like this weapon. Like each side is throwing around the word love. Like if you love, this is what you do. If you love, this is what you do. And each of them is throwing around this word. And I believe this is where the teachings of Matthew are key because when we say love, I believe we act, we, in our hearts and our minds that we believe what we're doing is love. I believe we do. Because to paraphrase Jesus and Matthew, we are to love God and love our neighbor. So we listen to that, we hear that, and we tend to follow a strict interpretation of that law, right? But we often fail to follow the spirit of that law. Because 
the reality is the love that Jesus is talking about is a much simpler love. It's, it's, it's a love that we tend to exercise as conditional, but for Jesus it isn't conditional. Because we tend to love people if they follow what we believe, right? We love people if they are part of my ideology. We love people if they are part of my country. We love people when they are nice to us. We love people once we get to know them. We place all kinds of conditions on our version of love. And in doing so, we fall into the same sort of trap that the authorities who challenged Jesus fell into. But in Jesus' words, the harvests are plentiful, And the workers are few. Love abounds out there, but we put too many qualifiers on it. So we have to learn to exercise compassion just as Jesus did. And that's where it gets tricky, because what does that look like? Now, I have two personal stories from my life that just happened over the last couple weeks that I believe show you what not to do and maybe what to do. So um, as I've told you all, my sister's been in the hospital for a while. Um, I think she's going on seven weeks now, and she's uh, had a series of surgeries and skin grafts, um, and she's act- they actually are keeping her in the intensive burn unit um, um, while they uh, take care of her. And one day I went to visit her, and she's in the, you know, she shares a room with someone else, and she's in the, the, the window area of the room, so the, right away you get in there and you pull the curtain, because, you know, that gives you privacy in a room, right? Um, so we pull the curtain, and she's talking to me real quick about her, the person who is next to her, and she's like, this, she's a younger woman, she's, she's never happy, she's always mad at the nurses, she's always mad at the doctor, she's just not in a good place. And so she's telling me the story, and then this uh, woman comes back in the room, I think she had a procedure, she comes back, and she lays down in her bed, and she starts weeping, and she's just laying in her bed crying, and I'm sitting there wanting to go over there, right? I mean, I'm a pastor. I should be over there, right? That's my job. But then I'm like, I'm here for my sister. I'm not here for this woman, right? So I did nothing. I let this woman cry. And as I was, as I was leaving, the social worker from the hospital came in and sat down and talked with this woman. I decided that I didn't have enough time in my day and it wasn't my responsibility. It was someone else's responsibility. Well, what's fascinating is that my sister went for a procedure the next day, and she was gone for a couple hours. When she came back, there was a present on her bed, and it was from the the woman in the bed next to her because she was thinking about her and she was worried about her. This woman had compassion for my sister. Even though she was in a dark place, she had compassion for my sister. Then uh, she was discharged from the hospital. Yay, this woman was discharged. A week later, she comes back and she visits my sister in the hospital. This woman who's in pain and hurting finds time in her schedule to, to um, visit my sister. Yet me, as the pastor, I said I didn't have time. What's that about, right? So that's my first story. I don't look too hot right now. I'm sorry, I don't. My second story is uh, I, was, uh, I was at the doctor's for myself. I was getting MRIs on my knees because uh, I have bad knees. And I was sitting in the waiting room uh, waiting for my chance to... To, to go back there to the MRI machine. And uh, they wheel this woman in in a wheelchair, and she's crying. She's uh, having a very difficult time. And I said to myself, I said, I'm going to learn from the last time, and I'm going to do something, right? So I'm getting ready to speak up and talk to this woman. And right away, the guy next to me goes, it's okay, miss. You're going to be okay. You are loved. You're going to be great. 
total stranger just said this to her, and she just looks at him, and she smiles, and, you know, so she's still crying, so I'm like, oh, this is great, you know, you know, someone, you know, someone is showing compassion and love for her, so he goes off to her MRI, and she's still crying, and um, the administration, and they're bringing her paperwork to fill out and sign, well, they bring her all this paperwork, and they say, miss, you have to sign this paperwork, and she goes, I can't use my, my left side of my body, it turns out that she had been plugging in a lamp in her house and something happened where a nerve was pinched and she lost all feeling on one side of her body. So they were requesting that she sign this paperwork and she couldn't even feel that side of the, that she needed to, to sign with. So I went up to her and I said, I'll help you sign. And, you know, I helped her sign her name. I held her hand as she signed her name. And then I started talking with her and asking her what was going on. And um, she explained that, you know, she was plugging in her lamp and, just all of a sudden this happened, so she came to the hospital thinking that hopefully it was going to be a quick fix. It turns out now she needs major surgery because of it. And she was crying, and she said, I'm all alone. No one's here for me. And, you know, I explained to her, you know, I said, I know it feels like you're all alone, but now I'm thinking about you, and now I know you. And I asked her her name. Her name was Linda. I said, well, now, Linda, you're not alone. I'm with you, and so was this man before. And, you know, I sat down, and I talked with her for a little bit, just tried to give her comfort, um, and then she went back for her surgery. So those are my two stories, one where I struggled with this idea of compassionate love, and one where I feel like I did a decent job. You know, I'm not tooting my own horn, but beep, beep, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but I think both of those are tales of how love can manifest itself and how it becomes contagious, right? Because the way this, this woman in the hospital showed love towards my sister became contagious for me, and it made me want to share that love with other people. And through that, uh, when I talked with this woman, Linda, in that hospital, I saw a revelation of God through her. I saw a piece of God in my conversations with her. And I think that's really important to look for God in those situations, look for compassion, look for where God reveals God's self, because God is always revealing. We just have to look, right? And we just have to exercise compassionate. And when we exercise compassionate love to the stranger, that, I believe, is where God is manifested in ways that live into the spirit of the law that Jesus is always talking about. And this is where the harvest is plentiful. Because I believe, just like me, you like to think to yourselves, I get that I'm supposed to love everyone, but how? Right? And I think the key way is to Use compassion before judgment. It sounds simple. I think there's a few statements that we can avoid, a few but statements that we can avoid to do this. First of all, but they deserved it. That's a big one. But they did this to themselves. But they didn't follow the rules. But it is someone else's responsibility. But they don't believe and act like I do. There's a whole lot of other buts as well. Those are the ones I could think of. Because the reality of the situation is the people that we see as problems in this world, God sees as sons and daughters made in the image of God. When we justify our inaction to love compassionately, we create boundaries between us and God. And we don't have to do that. They don't have to exist. Our compassionate love is just as much for those we don't know. It should be as much as for those we do know. The harvest is plentiful, 
we are with God when we love others. We are with God when we see each person as a beloved child of God. And as Jesus said, we are the few workers. And there's a lot to harvest. So we have to stop saying buts. Uh, Bob Goff, in his book, uh, talks about the word with. That becomes a very important word for him. It's important to be with people. It's not important to be around them. You have to be with them. Jesus was with those around him, and it transformed lives. Now, don't discount your ability to be with people and transform lives just as Jesus did. You can. It isn't really easy, right? It involves us finding comfort in the discomfort, right? We have to make ourselves uncomfortable sometimes to do that. It means talking to a random stranger who may be crying in a waiting room. It might mean talking to someone that you've put up walls against because you've just decided they're kind of a jerk. Uh, um, But maybe once you get to know them, they're not a jerk. Maybe they're a pretty nice person. There's all kinds of ways that we can work on finding comfort in the discomfort. And we shouldn't do this to fulfill some quota because Pastor Nick got up here on, on Sunday morning and told a couple stories, right? We should do it because that's what Jesus did, and that's what Jesus still does. And when Jesus is with people, it transformed the world. It continues to transform the world today. And we are called to be less like the world, right? And more like Jesus. So, go out into the field. Start harvesting. You might surprise yourself by what you get. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you have been enriched by the word proclaimed. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at ministry at orchardumc.org. You can find out more about Orchard by going to our website at www.orchardumc.org.